Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, John Teal. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 134. Before we get started, I'd like to announce that Derek Broder, also known as The Current Source, will be a judge for the Macrofab Design Contest Blink and LED, sponsored by Mauser. Check out Derek. He was on the MEP episode 103. John Teal is the founder of Predictable Designs, a company which helps startups, makers, and small companies develop new electronic products. Previously, John was on episode 106 of the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, where John spoke about making the product development process as predictable as possible. And this time around, we're going to discuss uh, enclosure design, specifically how to prototype and design injection molded enclosures for your products. So I think the best way to get started with this is, John, what is like the general process for injection molding? Well, the, the you know, the, the, the simple uh, description is, is that hot molten plastic is injected into a, a metal mold at high pressure. Uh, you know, that completely fills in the mold. And because of the high pressure, then the part is allowed to cool. The mold opens up and injector ejector pins uh, push the part out, and that's basically the simplified process. It's a it's really old technology. I believe it's uh, the the basic uh, process has been around since like 1946, I believe. And so it's a it's a really old technology. But that that's pretty much the the simple uh, simple explanation. It gets a lot more complicated, obviously, once you you start talking the details. But at a basic level, that's what injection molding is. So it's like uh, it's like adult Play-Doh, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's start talking about uh, the challenges of injection molding. Like, what? How do you get started in it? Whenever you bring up product design, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, three D printed cases," and you know, modifying other cases. But the moment you say injection molding, it has this like mystical aura around it. It's like the equivalent of like RF design. <laughs> I think RF is a really good analogy. That that's kind of a a mystical area, you know, black magic from the electronic side, just like injection molding is from the mechanical side. But I, I would say, you know, most of that centers around the fact that there are, you know, it's a really old technology, and there are so many different restrictions on what can be done with it. So although it's, it's a relatively simple process. You inject molten uh, plastic, you let it cool, and you pop it out. That sounds simple enough, but it actually there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of rules on exactly what you can what you can create the shape. Um, with 3D printing, you can pretty much 3D print any shape that you can come up with. Uh, there, there's really not any limit with that technology. Versus, can you 3D print a Mobius strip? Uh, well, <laughs> okay, I guess I need to be careful about saying anything. But, <laughs> but in general, you, you can print. That, that's the, the biggest uh, issue I see with a lot of people that are you know developing a product. They've either hired someone to do the enclosure design or they're trying to do it themselves. And they, they just give no thought whatsoever to, you know, eventually the goal is to get this past a prototype and to mass manufacture it. And that requires injection molding technology. And if you design the product wrong from the beginning and, you know, you, you think you've got your, your model all right, and then you go to manufacture and you realize, oh, this is, this is nowhere near being something that can be manufactured. And you're, at that point, you're forced to kind of start over 
So it's definitely something you want to know up front and understand that, you know, all the requirements and limitations of injection molding. Uh, expanding out that, especially where a lot of times your internal circuits depends on your external case as well, your enclosure. So doing this as soon as possible in your product iteration is probably very important. Yeah, it, it kind of, it depends. You know, if you're, if you're, product is really size critical and you're going to, you know, your, your goal is to work on the, the printed circuit board layout and get it, squeeze it as absolute, as small as possible, then it can be difficult to do the enclosure ahead of time because you don't know how small you're going to be able to make the PCB. So you don't want to, you know, count on being able to get it down to a one inch square when it, you know, comes out at one and a quarter. So you, you have to be careful about not starting too early. If, if you have the, if you have flexibility to some extent, in the size of your printed circuit board and you're not really trying to squeeze every, you know, uh, micrometer out of the, the, the size of the product, then you, you have more flexibility. And in that case, you can uh, do the, the, the two, the enclosure and the electronics simultaneously in a lot of times. Well, in so many ways, I think this kind of speaks to the, the idea of having like a product definition ahead of time, as opposed to just kind of being, you know, driving on like we'll figure it out when it happens kind of thing like you you have to design to a specification in a way yeah which is something that uh, my experience entrepreneurs or people that are kind of startups that are new to product development they don't fully appreciate you know all the requirements and the specifications that can sometimes be necessary for a product versus an established company obviously you know they have very detailed product specification document. Oh, so I was going to go back to the the mystical aura around it. So is it is it because it's hard, or it can't just because it's old technology? Because that's the thing about RF design is there is math and equations that you can design around, but for some reason that makes it even more mystical. I guess is that how it is with injection molding? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's, you know, nearly the, the math that goes behind uh, injection molding. It's more of some uh, practical um, rules. I, I think probably the, the best way to understand it is for me to give a, a few examples of things that you have to, uh, you have to design for when you're doing injection molding. A, a lot of the, or at least some of the, the, the rules that you have to follow come from the fact that you have to be able to... Uh, you have to eject the part once it's cooled. So as simple as that sounds, ejecting a, a part, it can have, it, it forces limitations on what you can do with the, the part. So there are two basic types of molds. There's one called just a simple pool mold. And then there are molds that have side actions. So a simple mold, a pool mold is one that you, you simply open the mold and the parts can pop out. Versus with a mold that requires side actions, Let, let's say that you had a your your product had a, a wall that was parallel to the direction that the 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 part is is pulled out. If if that wall has a hole in it, then the the piece of the mold that has to go in to to form that hole will will prevent the part from being able to be removed from the mold. Uh, it, can make a little more sense if you if you see a picture, but the it's really easy to if you design features in the product that force it so once it hardens now you can't get the product out of the mold, and that uh, that can really complicate you can, you know there are two ways you either design your product or your enclosure so that it's a simple pull and you don't have to have side actions, but if you needed say a hole or a slot 
in a wall that's parallel um, to uh, the direction of, that you're removing the part, then you have to use what are called side actions. So you could have a side action is part of the mold that, that comes in from the sides, uh, so that would be perpendicular to the pull direction. So that they come in when the part is molded, you know, when you inject the plastic, and then as soon as it cools, those side actions are pulled out of the mold, and then the mold is opened, and then that allows you to still uh, pull the part out. So if it, it really complicates, and it really gets the, the cost of the molds to be really expensive once you start doing side actions. So it's, it's something as simple as having a, a hole in a wall that's parallel to the pull direction, that can prevent you from removing the the part there the, the easy way to around that is to do like what's uh is to put a slot under that so instead of it, once again it, it's something you, you it's really helpful to have a picture but if you you there are ways to instead of having a hole if you had a, a long slot then that allows the product to be pulled out of the mold without having a side action so side actions are, are one thing that really kind of complicate the the, the mold pr designing for injection molding Another one is so. What a side action uh, mold? Because I imagine it's it's what makes the the mold more expensive. Is there's probably a, a higher degree of tolerance uh, with that metal sliding on other metal in the mold uh, compared to just a simple, sim uh, you know, a two piece, sim you know, pull mold like you were talking. Does it increase the price after the mold's been made? Um, it, it can. It, it will increase the, the cost of the mold and it will increase the cost of the fabricated parts because there's just uh, additional time uh, associated with it. So a lot of it is, you know, what the, the what what the you know the molding time is is, is going to also set the mm -hmm. the price. Well, and and I think actually uh, probably most of our listeners have experienced you know, the, the effects of what you're talking about when uh, dealing with enclosures that have draft angles on the walls uh, to allow them to be released from the mold. Uh, many enclosures that you, you, know, you deal with have like a two to three degree angle such that they can actually be released from the mold once the, once the pieces come apart. Yeah, exactly. Oh, are you talking about like how project boxes and the like have a draft on the, ed on the sides? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at first, if you don't if you don't understand that that's coming out of a mold, it's like you you, you it's confusing at first because it's like why would you make an angled wall? I want a square box. You know, I want ninety degrees everywhere. Well, it's it's because they actually ha it has to come out of a mold at one point in time. Yeah, that's ex exactly right. That you know, drafting is a is a big part of it, and it's tends to be a little bit uh, simpler thing to to deal with. You know, you can just kind of add draft after. You know, typically when you're doing the prototyping stage, you don't want to add the draft. That's something you can add later once you're you're ready to go to manufacturing because it just tends to complicate the model and having draft in there. Uh, so my experience, I, I like to do the prototyping without the draft and then add the the draft in later. But that's different than dealing with the simple pool versus side actions. That's something that requires a, a fundamental change in the way you develop you design the product versus draft is something you can always you can always add at a later point for sure i think the uh best best way to explain like what you're talking about with the with the simple pull uh molds is like think of like a power drill i don't know if anyone's seen a video like 
you know, AVE tearing apart a power drill or whatever. It's always in two pieces and it's like split down the middle. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, most enclosures are, requ- uh, there's a top side and a bottom side that have to be uh, molded separately. Um, so that's, that's, you know, most enclosures that you, you can't, you can't really mold an enclosed enclosure in a single mold. You have to do it as two halves and then, you know, either glue or ultrasonically weld or, or screw those two parts together. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, I've certainly run into plenty of designs where that concept is not necessarily understood, uh, where, you know, somebody has just done a 3D CAD of what they hope that their enclosure will look like. And it's virtually impossible to actually create because it has overhangs or it has geometries that will basically hang on to the mold. Uh, and so there's sort of an art to understanding, you know, this, that this, you know, piece of plastic actually has to be handled in a specific way. Yeah, it, it sounds so simple, you know, when you first describe what injection molding is and you have, but, and you wouldn't think just pulling a, a piece of plastic out of a mold would, you know, create complex design rules, but it, it does. And that's, uh, you know, a lot of them are associated with just having to, to remove the part from the mold. Because so I've designed a lot of models for 3D printing, and some of those design rules are like limiting overhangs. You can't go over, you know, with, well, it depends on the 3D printing technology, of course, but like with the typical FDM printing, you can't go over like 45 degrees, like 50 degree overhang. You're starting to push it. Um, is there any kind of rules like that for injection molded? Yeah, there are, you know, there's minimum wall thicknesses, uh, you know, it kind of runs between maybe one and two millimeters is a minimum wall thickness. But th- that in general is one of the other main requirements for injection molding is it, it has to, you, you can't have any parts of the, the product where it's a, a solid block or chunk of plastic. Everything has to be made out of uniform wall thicknesses. And the, the reason being, you, you want the, you want the, the, the molten plastic to flow uniformly uh, into the mold, but also you want the product, uh, you want it to cool uniformly because if it doesn't cool uniformly, then you'll get warpage. So if you have, you know, this one part of the product, that's this really, you know, that's 10 millimeters thick, then that's going to cool off a lot slower than the, uh, you know, a wall that's only one millimeter thick. And that, that causes like a, a thermal differential that causes the, the part to warp. So that's a, another thing that a, a lot of people that aren't used to designing for injection molding have a hard time grasping is you, you have to pretty much design the entire product to use the same wall thickness. And instead of using like thick uh, blocks, you have to use like a rib-based uh, design. You know, you add the ribs to still give it the the strength, the mechanical strength, but while maintaining the uniform wall thickness. Although, uh, you know, maybe we're getting a little bit complex. Um, I have heard of differential cooling before for some components to actually purposefully add stress to certain areas. That might be too complex to discuss here, but um, have you had experience with that? Yeah, no, I no, I haven't. Okay, well, <laughs> most of my experience comes, you know, with obviously I'm a you know electronics design engineer, not a mechanical injection molder, uh, molding expert. But my experience comes from having my own hardware product developed and on the market, and you know, I started off hiring uh, freelance uh, mechanical engineers to do the the 3D modeling and design the enclosure, but. I, I got impatient and decided to learn it myself and, you know, went through the entire process of having molds created and 
China and, you know, so I, I've been through all this, but it, it's mainly, most of it has been with one product. So some of these experimental techniques like you're talking about isn't something I've really had any experience with. Sure, sure. Well, okay, so let's let's go ahead and kind of bounce off of that um, because there's, there's a lot of questions that go, uh, practical questions that go behind, you know, how do I actually initiate all of this? How do I actually like get this done? And so, you know, what files are you going to need to create? And do you make the mold itself? Or do you pass that off to some expert and they make the mold for you? Yeah, generally you will you you may create the 3D model for your product, but in general, the, the you'll you'll need either your manufacturer that's going to do the injection molding, or if you go to a third party to to have the the mold made, um, then that will uh, you know need to be uh, through them. Are are molds uh, universal, or like do you need to work with like a specific manufacturer and they have a mold? like like their machines are physically different between places yeah the the, the machines are physically different um I, I don't know exactly how many different styles of machines are there may be you know an infinite number or there may be two or three but i you know i have enough experience that I, when i've had molds made by one manufacturer it wasn't something you could easily uh migrate them over to another manufacturer because the molding machine was had a, a different you know, it was designed for different uh, molds than, you know, what the, the, the first manufacturer. And and it's been my experience in the past that um, even with a particular manufacturer, a lot of times they will give you options on what material the mold is made out of. And that usually has an impact on timing and, and the cost and things like that. Uh, but some, you know, I've, I've had experience with, uh, I can't remember, it was like 2000 injections uh, on the low end. And then you could buy like a, a more premium mold that would go up to like 100,000 injections or something like that. So have you had experience with that? Um, yeah, yes, I, I, I definitely have. So the, the, the material that you're going to make the mold out of is going to depend on, first of all, how much money you want to spend and how many parts you're, you're going to make with it, as, as you've kind of uh, discussed. So if you're doing, you know, let's say less than 10,000 units, then you can, you can usually get by. Usually when you first start, you want to start with the, the softest, cheapest mold that you can, and that's typically going to be made out of aluminum. So you want to start with an aluminum mold. That's going to be the, the lowest cost, a single cavity, um, which I can talk about more in a minute. So start with a single cavity aluminum mold. And, you know, the starting cost for that, a simple pull mold, uh, you know, for just saying an average, a small product, you're looking about $1,500 is sort of a starting price for a mold. Um, I, for, for low volume, uh, molds and the molding, I have always, I've used a company called protolabs.com. So I know that's their, their cheapest mold is like $1,500. So that would be out of aluminum. Then you, you want to gradually step that up. So you may start with an aluminum mold that you pay 1500 for a single cavity. Then the next step, you know, you'll probably find some bugs and work that out. Then the next step, you would maybe want to go up to a steel mold, still single cavity, but, uh, you know, a, a softer steel. And then you can each time you can kind of keep ramping that up as your as your production volume ramps up, because as you know, once you get into molds that are made to pump out millions of units, so they're, they're made out of really hard steel, you know, they may have four, eight, 16 cavities 
then like you said, you're, you're getting up into the, you know, approaching a hundred thousand dollars per mold. And as you know, if you make the assumption of very minimum, you're going to need two of these uh, for your enclosure, one for the top side and one for the bottom side, uh, the, the prices can get out of hand really quickly. So, you know, I always tell entrepreneurs and startups, regardless of how, you know, you may feel confident your product's going to sell a million units immediately, but you, you don't want to set up manufacturing for that immediately. You want to, you want to ramp it up in steps because the worst case is you spend a hundred thousand or $200,000 to have molds made. Then, you know, you realize that there's a, a problem with the product and you need to change that mold. And then that just uh, creates an entire uh, nightmare of issues. So it's always best to to, to start with the simplest, cheapest solution, and then just continually take small steps up in the, the you know, in the mold as far as how many uh, pieces it can produce. Or your eight hundred dollar juicer ends up being at Goodwill for forty dollars. That's that's the other <laughs> other thing that can happen. Yeah, that, that's also true. <laughs> um, one one question I had was because um, you, you you're let's say you're doing your first shot, it's fifteen hundred fifteen hundred bucks, right? for your first mold and your first prototype stuff. Now, is there a way that you can, let's say you're designing your enclosure for injection molding. Is there, can you still 3d print that to at least get some prototypes rolling and like, um, show off the people to your investors and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I I don't believe any, anything you're going to do to the product to make it ready for injection molding is not going to prevent it from being 3d printed. Uh, the, the big difference is, is, you know, a 3D printed prototype or an enclosure can only get you so far because it, it looks like a prototype. It doesn't look like the actual production plastic. Um, with my own product, instead of doing 3D printing, I went with uh, doing CNC machining process for the prototype. And the, the reason being is you can, uh, you, you can build a prototype if you have a CNC machined that is a production injection molded plastic. So instead of you know stacking layers of a hot resin like with 3D printing, uh, CNC machining just takes a block of production injection molded plastic and then carves away from it. So if, if you feel that having the actual final production uh, plastic is important for your prototypes and CNC machining can be an alternative to 3D printing. Especially where a lot of times with your device, the how it looks is very important for a first uh, impression. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and with my own product, the the feel of the plastic had had a bit impact on how the the product felt to use and the the quality of the product. So it it, it took a long time to to you know to get everything just right when it's uh, something you know with how the product is how it feels or the plastic and you you don't want to that's not going to be something that you're going to be able to model correctly with a with the 3d uh printing resin it's not going to have the the same uh flexibility and the same impact strength and all the the other things as your pr- uh, final production plastic will yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to go take a, a 3D printed enclosure, prototype enclosure to go get, uh, you know, professionally tested, right? Oh, get UL tested? <laughs> yeah, to get UL tested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not for UL testing, but uh, even presenting them, you know, a lot of, you know, if you go to present it to a big retailer, they're going to be, you know, they don't really want to see a prototype that looks like a prototype. They want to see something that can be manufactured and uh, you know, they, they know that they, they can tell the difference quite quickly. 
Right. They, they, they want you to get as close as possible to the end product as you can. Absolutely. 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 And you kind of have to be careful. I don't, you know, I don't, I, at one point when I, with my own product, I had a, a retailer that was interested in it. I, I sent them a sample that had been 3d printed and I don't remember the details, but somehow the resin that was used was not a high temperature resin. So basically during shipping, the sample warped in the heat of the summertime, it completely warped, you know, the retailer got the product and said, you know, told me he thought it was awkward to use. And, you know, of course I was devastated and, until I researched it further and realized that he had one that basically melted in shipping. So you may want to be careful with that. <laughs> That's a good lesson learned. <laughs> so so we, we were talking about having molds made um, and, and I've got an, a question here about, well, so we know that that whatever whatever the mold is is machined to the the plastic is going to reflect that. So uh, regardless of if you have the actual shape of your device machined properly in the mold, you still have to make sure that the finish of the mold is the way that you want the end result finish of the plastic to be. So how do you specify that? I was helping design a a enclosure for someone, and they they just told me. I want it to look like plastic. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know what that means. Well, and if you don't know what that means, then the manufacturer doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a pretty open-ended uh, specification. Yeah, how do you specify that? Yeah, there are surface finish uh, specifications. And from what I recall, there are different grades that you can specify for how polished you want the... Obviously... The, the, the higher the polish, the, you know, the, the typically kind of the higher quality and uh, more reflective it will look. As far as, I don't honestly recall what those different levels of surface finish are, but that's, that's definitely part of the mold. And that may be something, you know, for your initial mold, you, you may not, you know, want to, you may not have to do or want to do. Uh, but as you increase the volume and start actually selling the, the product, then, uh, the surface finish, uh, you know, can likely become more of a significant issue. It's also likely something that your the mold manufacturer can probably also provide you information or even samples on. Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, that, and that's probably going to be the best way for you to figure out what type of surface finish you want is to get samples and, and look at other products and see what those surface finishes look like. And you will probably have more fallout with the higher level surface finishes just because of just. Right, I, w I would think that a mirror finish mold would uh, degrade quicker. At least the the end result of what you get. Yeah, 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 definitely. I I, I would imagine it would as well. All right, so your design's done. Um, how do you f go and find like a manufacturer to build your thing? You know, there are, there's a lot of different strategies uh, when you when you're first starting out for your first time. I highly recommend that you stick to a, a manufacturer that's domestic or at least moderately local to you, so you can you can go you know, over there and wanna, just, like, the last thing you want to do is beat their start knees off in. By trying to <laughs> offshore outsource this to, to China. I'm sorry, what was that? All I was saying is so you can go over there and beat their knees in. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, so uh, see, so you made me lose my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that was a derail right there 
Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. Okay. So you looking for somebody who's local makes it absolutely makes sense, especially if you've never done it before, because you can go talk to them. You can walk through the process. You can see the machines, which if, if you've never seen a, a injection molding, like a hundred ton injection molding machine, it's worth just going and looking at because they're really cool. <laughs> they're really awesome to watch. Yeah, in general, it's always best to start local. For, you know, I always recommend that everyone start local or domestic for all aspects of their product development or their product manufacturing, so they can mainly so you can more closely monitor the quality. You know, unless you want to plan on going to to China on a regular basis, it's much simpler to to monitor the quality locally. And once you get, you know, once you've run, you know, a few thousand units, you work out all the bugs in your mold. You've got everything absolutely finalized. Then it can make sense to you know move to a, an offshore uh, molding facility, but in general, don't don't rush to that. It, it takes everything takes much much longer when you're you're dealing with you know manufacturers in China, for instance. I mean, just the, the time delay and the shipping and the communication issues, and it, so it, you don't want to really be in a situation where you're trying to debug manufacturing issues. You you have all those issues worked out, and then then you can uh, go offshore to you know try to increase your profit margins. It's like you open up the phone book if people still get those. I bet you injection molding manufacturers aren't in there. So how do you just go about finding someone? Well, I'll tell you, you know, there are various ways, but I'll tell you my own, my own story with finding a manufacturer for my product. I had bought somewhere, and I don't recall this is five or six years ago, but I just bought a list of U.S. manufacturers that make uh, like products or do similar type of products. So that was the first thing is like, I just got a list. And honestly, I just started cold emailing them um, because first of all, if you're finding a manufacturer, what you really need to find is a manufacturing partner. So and unless you've already got investors and you're you're fully funded, uh, I I think it's, it should be a priority finding a manufacturer that wants to be a partner and that believes in your product because they can be one of your best sources of funds. They're going to be more willing to help you out and make sure your product succeeds. Yeah, and, uh, even more importantly to invest money. Uh, so with case, I emailed, I focused on a, a U.S. manufacturer that had facilities in China. And that way I kind of figured I, I got the, the best of, of both worlds. So I'd reached out to, you know, I don't know, a couple dozen of these companies and they responded. One of them responded, they really, you know, were interested in the product. And at this time I had, I had already had a prototype and had, uh, this was back in Blockbuster video, it was actually a, a big company. I already had interest in Blockbuster. So I was able to, to use that and leverage that to get a manufacturer interested. So this manufacturer, you know, they had facilities in the U.S., but also in China, they ended up, you know, we obviously they came and met with me. They liked the product so much that they ended up investing all the money for all the molds, which was you know over a hundred thousand dollars. And what they did was they amortized those costs. So the molds were a hundred thousand dollars, and then for example, on the first one hundred thousand units I sell, I had to pay them an extra dollar to reimburse them for the mold cost. So that that can be a pretty common arrangement if you can find a manufacturer that is inter- believes in your product and wants to help you. Uh, get it out there. They, they also tend to have to be a manufacturer that it's not at full capacity. If, if they're running full capacity, then they're not looking as seriously for new business. So you, you kind of have to find the right manufacturer that develops some of the product is is not at full capacity. So they're, they're looking for some business deals. And in that case, you can have them, you know, like with me, amortize the, 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 the cost of the mold, which is a, a huge uh, a huge benefit since, you know, the, the mold cost tends to be kind of the biggest obstacle to scale a hardware product from prototype to, to mass manufacturing. The other thing that if you find the right manufacturer that's a partner, and this is going to get a little bit off the subject, but is the biggest issue for hardware companies eventually is cash flow. You, you normally have to pay the manufacturer up front, then you know, it takes a month to ship the product to the U.S., then you ship it to like a retailer, then they pay you 30 days later. So you're having to finance all this until you eventually get paid. But with my manufacturing partner, I got them to agree to give me terms 
that allowed me to pay them after I was paid by the by my customers. So you could like you could like net six months them. At ninety days, so oh, that's not, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, the, the standard manufacturer, most retailers will pay net thirty. So you know they get the product thirty days later, they pay you for it. So net ninety gave me you know because it leaves the factory in China, it takes about three to four weeks to get here uh, you know, by uh, sea vessel, um, and then you know shipping time to the retailer, and you know they'll pay you like thirty days after that. So you kind of have to fund everything for you know two to three months. So if you can find a manufacturing partner that once again believes in your product, that's something else that they can they can help you with. And in my opinion, this is the most under uh, looked at type of funding for startups. Everyone focuses on mainly on equity funding. This, this way you get funding and you don't have to give away your company. So Kickstarter and that kind of stuff too. Yeah, there's there's Kickstarter, but you know, uh, yeah, that that has it, its its own set of issues. So this is just a another possibility. So to answer your question, yeah, yeah, or yeah, there's there's uh, you know, my product got kickstarted and then I spent it all on a house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, true story. <laughs> true story on that one. Yeah. So uh, I guess what you kind of just discussed sort of answers this question, but I have had this kind of come up before. Um, if you're purchasing or if you're working with your partner to create a mold and they're charging you for the mold, do you own it or do they own it? If in, in my case, since it was an amortized, since I basically, they lent me the money, uh, they owned it. But once I paid it off, then the, the agreement wasn't it would be under my ownership. So they, they own it until I pay back the money for the mold. But if you pay for it up front, then you should own the mold, the mold. But in this case, if they're lending you money, then you most likely won't own it until you pay them back for it. Yeah, I want to guess it depends on the terms. Because it's the same thing with like stencils and tooling and PCB manufacturing as well. It's like, who owns it? Yeah, every, every situation is different. And it really depends on the manufacturer, your product, how good it is, how much progress you've made, how well you can negotiate. There's... There's, there's really no standard answer to any of this. Um, sure. Well, and one of the reasons why I was asking that question is because I'm aware of one, you know, uh, macrofab style uh, injection molding uh, company. Uh, I say macrofab style as in you upload your 3D file. They quote you a mold and they quote you a price per unit. You st- is that Protolabs? Uh, it, I don't think it's that one. I think it. I think it's a different one. Um, but however, uh, I know in their terms, you pay for the mold, but they own it, such that if you ever wanted to move to a different manufacturer, you'd have to go start over again. Y- you know, you couldn't take that mold with you. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, you're you're totally right in situations like that. I, I have seen that. I don't recall if Proto Mold or Proto Labs does that as well. But for yeah, that that's part of the reason I think you're able to get the the molds fairly low cost um you know fifteen hundred dollars is is really quite cheap for any mold so i i suspect that's part of their reason that they can offer you that cheap is they they know that you're forced to get them basically an exclusive unless you want to have a a different uh a different mold made right they they keep you in the family yeah absolutely yeah so we kind of discussed you know a little bit of the upfront costs uh with with this but let's say i'm designing a new product and i've got you know, I've got a budget of, of, of 10 K for the mold. Does that get me, uh, you know, just for, for whatever standard product, do you think that that would get me close enough to, to get some prototypes in? So is this 10 K, uh, to actually have everything, you know, the, the enclosure designed, or are you just talking for the molds themselves? Let's say for the molds themselves. Yeah. I mean, uh, 10 K will get you, you know, probably moderate, 
volume molds you could you know you could, that's enough to probably upgrade from an aluminum to like a soft steel but it, it really it really depends in a big way on how many pieces of plastic your product requires i mean the simplest is you're going to need two molds but you know a lot of products have four to you know 30 different uh custom pieces of plastic in them and anytime someone presents me a product that requires lots of different custom plastic pieces uh, you know that that's a, a big red flag that you're you're looking at huge amounts of uh, money to be able to set up manufacturing because of the mold cost but 10,000 that you know that's going to get you a you know you could probably get a, a maybe one mold that's a, say like a two cavity mold that's a steel mold so you know you're looking at volumes maybe 25 to 100,000 units and how much on uh, at just roughly just like a guess like how much would you be paying per shot then for the lifetime of that mold like let's say you're shooting abs plastic yeah it really depends on you know the the kind of the main requirement is what's the cycle time and how much plastic is being used so if as you increase the number of cavities in your mold then your cycle time goes way down and you know each shot you're making four parts instead of just one so that that's drastically uh, lowers the cost is by increasing the number of cavities. So basically by increasing your upfront cost, you lower your tail cost. Exactly. Which tends to be a common theme in a lot of areas. Obviously the, the more you spend upfront, the it's going to tend to save you on your, your manufacturing cost. It, my, my advice is, is for, you know, once again, unless you're a large company, to not focus initially on trying to reduce your unit cost or increase your profit margins, but you need to instead focus on reducing your risk and cost to get the product to market. Make sure uh, there is a market there for your product. Yeah, make sure there's a market before you spend the money on the really expensive molds. And then you, know, then you, can, you can worry about after you've gotten the product on the market, you've proven there's a market for it, you've gotten feedback, um, You've made all the you know improvements that you think are necessary. Then at that point, you can start focusing on trying to optimize your profit. We can models. finish up with a couple like prototyping questions, John. Is that cool? Um, let's do like a so if someone skipped to like well, it's a timestamp for right now. Uh, the forty-three minute mark. Do you have a TLDR for prototyping an injection molded enclosure? So, are you asking for a, a lengthy <laughs> explanation? Or? Uh, I'd say a couple sentences if we can sum up. Just like how would you go about prototype? So, let's say you already have your 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 electronics are are designed. How would you go about prototyping an injection molded enclosure? So like you know, you're going to build. Uh, 10,000 plus of these things. So 3D printing an enclosure is out of the question and uh, modifying an enclosure is going to be end up costing too much money in the long run. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, my first uh, piece of advice is if you're going to outsource this, make sure you ask the person doing this, do you understand injection molding and how to design for manufacturing? If they don't, then you need to find someone else because uh, there are a huge number of people out there that can do 3D modeling and they're, they're really good at it, but they have no concept of injection molding. So you, you, you spend all that money, you get a product that you can't manufacture. Um, Is there any resources people can go online and 
look at like how to design for injection molded enclosures? Oh, there, yeah, there are huge numbers of, uh, I don't have any offhand, but there are, you know, Proto Labs website, they have quite a bit on, you know, like uh, how to, as far as designing uh, for injection molding. And one thing I found that they have that I really used a lot is they their quoting tool has a built-in uh, so interface so you can upload your 3D model and it analyzes it and points out any issues with your design from a from an injection molding standpoint. So it's like so, a DFM for your model. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and it, it's really user friendly. Uh, you know, you see the 3D model, they highlight the areas in red and tell you what the problems are. And I, I used that extensively when I was designing my enclosure. You know, I would, you know, run it through there, find out the problems, fix all those, run it through again. It would usually find a few more, and then just keep going through that process and, until I got it right. What's next step after that? So you've got a design that you think can be injection molded. Yeah. So the you know the the. The next step, well, first of all, you want to make sure you've, you know, prototyped it enough using 3D printing to make sure that it's going to meet your needs. I mean, that would be the, yeah, that it's the right shape that your product fits into it. Um, Obviously, do all that in the 3D model before you, you know, start doing the injection molding. Because obviously that's, you know, the injection moldings, once you're, you're past the, prototyping stage well i yeah i would agree but you one of the big things was uh you know making sure all your wall thicknesses are the same where and in early stages of your pro, your enclosure design it's probably better to start doing that first it is you don't want to yeah to go back and you know you don't have to make necessarily every wall exactly the same but you want that general concept in the design from an from an early standpoint you don't it needs to be you know you may tweak the thickness but you you don't want you know like large blocks of plastic and you know so everything has to to be uniform there are also and i i don't i think solidworks uh like 3d modeling software has uh like uh, an additional uh piece of you know the software that you can add to it that does injection molding simulations so they they will on your part they'll show you how it would feel you you can kind of see oh you know this the product isn't you know the plastic isn't flowing uniformly i need to round this corner to make everything flow smoother so that that's another tool that you you definitely want to use before you add actually have the molds made and typically the mold maker will will do that as well my manufacturer at the time was was doing that process for me because that was an area you know i hadn't had any experience with so they were they were doing the simulations beforehand cool um so we got what were we at in the process we've got the enclosure designed uh and dfm'd yeah yeah, we prototyped it. It's a DFM. Then the next step is to to start uh, with uh, aluminum single cavity, cheapest molds you can get, um, and and then work up from there. And I, uh, Stephen had the question on here: is uh, what if I want a sample? But we've already talked about that. It's basically your sample is you make a really inexpensive aluminum mold and a one shot mold, and then make some. Yeah, I mean you don't have to. You know, you may just want to do the injection molds, not necessarily because you want to pump out 10,000 units, but because you want a professional market ready looking sample. 
And typically the only way you're going to get that is with injection molding. Right, right. And, and you know, so, so one of the things that, that, um, that, that question was maybe worded incorrectly. <laughs> it's not what if I want to sample. Everyone wants a sample, right? Everyone for sure wants one. And, and, and the thing is, there are, a cer- there are certain things that uh, really only work with injection molding. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes you'll have plastics that have glass beads that are injected in there, or sometimes you'll have oh, glass fiber. Yeah. Sometimes you'll have, um, you know, specific electrical conductivity of the actual plastic that you want to test. And that's not something that you could 3d print or not something that you could like buy a block of and mill down. You would, you would literally have to shoot it to just see if it's right. Uh, so it, it seems like buying the the cheapest aluminum mold to just make sure everything is right, that seems to be the best option. Yeah, it is. And typically when they f- first, uh, you know, when you if you have a new mold, they're not going to just, you know, just use it, you know, you know make the 100 units or whatever and uh, just assume they're all right. Typically, from my experience, you know, they're, they're going to make a few samples, send it to you. You're going to be like, ah, oh, you know, this parting line or you know this other feature doesn't look right to me and you know you you may they may have to modify you know not necessarily the mold sometimes maybe that but also you know the level of pressure and and uh, yeah the temperature and some of the you know they can increase the temperature to you know make the 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 plastic flow uh, more uh, smoothly so there's various knobs that they can turn so typically you, you will go through a, a sampling process before you are ready to start manufacturing with those molds i and uh one last thing is how do you pick the right material because there is a million different types of plastic is there a specific plastic that you should pick or for like an electronics project or is it kind of you know does not yeah dealer choice dealer's choice yeah there <laughs> Yeah, there are there are uh, probably thousands of choices, uh, but in general, for there, the the two most common types by far are polycarbonate, um, just or PC, and then ABS. Um, don't ask me to pronounce what the ABS stands for, but so ABS and uh, polycarbonate. So a, poly, a polycarbonate plastic is gonna is gonna have a higher quality appearance. It, it's gonna have a higher impact strength. And that's typically what, you know, like higher dollar consumer electronics uh, will typically use. So for most of the products that will be designed by people listening to this, the polycarbonate is going to be your your best choice. Um, But with those features comes additional cost. So if you're really cost sensitive and appearance isn't quite as critical, then an ABS plastic uh, may be a, a better choice. But it, it depends on, you know, if you're going to be in a high temperature environment with, you know, an acidic environment, there are all these different requirements. Uh, but just in general, as a basic guideline, it typically is either polycarbonate or ABS. And I bet you whatever manufacturer you find can probably recommend what kind of material they would like to use for whatever application you're using. Yeah, absolutely. You you can. Th- there will be some back and forth on you know exactly what material that you want to use and you know what what you know what are the specifications and what what are the costs. Obviously, that has a can have us you know an uh, impact on the enclosure cost. Although for most of the products that I deal with, you know, that have decently complex electronics, the enclosure 
cost itself is pretty minimal compared to you know all the electronics and having the printed circuit board assembled and right especially if it was designed by an electrical guy that's where the money's going to go (laughs) 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 so steven do you have any other questions for john uh, you know, I, I don't believe so. We, we certainly hacked away a bunch of questions that, uh, that I came up with for John. That's for sure. So John, we're definitely going to have to have you back on the podcast again. Cause it's always, I learn about an entirely new subject every single time you come on. Oh, okay. Great. I like hearing that. <laughs> you want to sign us out, John? Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, that was the Macrofab engineering podcast. I was your guest, John Teal. And we were your hosts, Perka Doman. And Stephen Craig. See you next time, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you are a listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or you've done injection molding, and you want Stephen and I to discuss it, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button. Wait, that podcast? Uh, the podcast. MacFab Engineering Podcast. Subscribe it. Uh, that way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen. As it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us. I'm watching Stephen just crack up on the uh, video screen over here.